It is good to be with you again today. I, uh, this is our second and final week uh, covering the topic of Trinity, but by no means is this the last time you will ever hear about Trinity. Uh, this is a complicated subject, one we will certainly return to, um, if not before the end of this year, um, in future years, right? There's a lot more to discuss than we have time for, unfortunately. But um, before, we, before we do anything else, uh, let us go to God in prayer. We praise you, Holy Father, for sending your Son to be our Savior. We praise you, Holy Jesus, for the promise of sending us a comforter so that you would be with us always. We praise you for the abundant life we have in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. So we jumped around a lot last week. You, you should hopefully have one of these big packets, about 16 pages long. And as I said last week, I'll briefly say again, this uh, just uh, about six months, I think it was, before I came here, I taught this at my last church. Um, and I was a six-week course, two hours a week, and it was a lot of material. And so there's, if you think this is a lot, there's, there's so much more. Um, but this is kind of a summary, and I've read a few more things since then, and so have added in even more. So uh, if you'll remember that we, end, we were just ending our time last week, we were talking about um, one God, and we talked about three in one, one in three, but one what in three what, right? And we were really focusing in on how it is... Uh, one being, one essence, three people, right? That God, uh, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, all come from the same being. They are grounded in the same stuff. But there's this distinction. And the, and the image I gave last week was a pendulum swinging back and forth. The pendulum is always in motion. We can never say, oh, oh God's three, God's one. It, God, God, right? Because the pendulum keeps swinging back and forth. And so this is what's hard for us. As I talked about last week, all language, uh, all theological language at some point is accommodation. We don't know. We can't know. It's like trying to explain physics to my son. He's not going to get it unless I, unless I simplify it, right? So Trinity, the simplest form of Trinity is still really hard to get, and it's still there, you can easily poke holes in it and say, well, that's not quite right. There's something more that we should say, but we don't have the words for it, right? How, who is God at the very core of God's being? Well, we would say God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's as close as we can get to the fullest definition of who God is. Does that capture the fullness of God? Is we believe it pretty close. That's pretty close pretty much as close as we can get. So we talked about also last week how in the uh, transition from polytheism, we believe in all these different gods to Trinitarianism, we had a few stops along the way. So 
in the world of polytheism, there are lots of gods. We moved towards monolatry, right? Saying there maybe there are lots of gods, but for me, I'm just going to worship this one. I think this one's really important, probably supreme over all the other ones. To, and then a shift to what we classically know, know as monotheism, right? There is just this one God. There really are no others. You guys are all making it up, and this is the only true God. Then Jesus comes on the scene, right? We, we talked about that paradig paradigmatic shift. Uh, the thought experiment last week of what would you do if we found out there was alien life out there? It's going to really change how we think about God, creation, salvation. It's going to change, right? So Jesus was that paradig paradigmatic shift where we think God is one. The central creed of, of the Jewish faith, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But here, Jesus, Jesus is really cool. He seems to be more than human. He's healing people. He's doing all these things. Yeah, we believe in one God, but here comes Jesus, and we really believe that something's going on, and here we have two but we can't believe in two gods. We can't believe in two gods. So something has to happen. We have to start redefining our, the words we're using, right? So we move very briefly towards binitarianism, right? And this, there's this kind of flux. Um, has anyone heard the word binitarianism before last week? Probably not, right? We don't talk about it a lot because it's a, this weird in-between time, right? We have, we have one god, in three persons, something had to happen in between. There's, it's a stepping stone on the way towards Trinity. In that process, um, as I said, uh, it, it, along the way, we've got to go back to our holy scriptures. We have to figure out what we believe. And so in the uh, earliest church, they didn't have the New Testament, all 27 books from Matthew to Revelation. They didn't have that. Maybe they had some letters from Paul, um, but the scripture, right? When we say, according to the scripture, the scripture is our Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And so looking back at the Hebrew Bible, the, uh, the earliest church said, well, if this is the fullest revelation of who God is, was God hiding himself? No, God had to be revealing himself. And we have to go back. We have to dig deep and see if there's something more going on here. And that is that uh, crazy phrase that I that you all oohed and odd about last week. Prosopological exegesis. Ooh, right? Prosopological exegesis. Let me break it down. Exegesis means drawing meaning out of a text. Prosopa mean prosopon means face. Rich, could you turn me down just a hair? I think I'm just about to, if I turn the wrong way, I think I'm, it might shriek at me. Um, squeaky, it's a little squeaky. Can you still hear me back there? Yeah, can you still hear me, Roger? Yeah, we're all good back there? Okay. Sorry, I look a lot quieter, but that's okay. So prosopon is face, right? So the idea is that as people are speaking back in the Hebrew, I'm going to call it Old Testament, so we're on the same page. Hebrew Bible is not, it's a tricky term. Um, for, for a moment, I'm going to call it Old Testament because that's what we're talking about. New Testament's on its way. As we're talking about the Old Testament, um, 
we see all these conversations taking place, these dialogues between various people who are unnamed. And the earliest church fathers and scholars and readers are saying, what's going on here? Oh, wait a second. Maybe this is a conversation between God the Father and God the Son or God the Spirit, right? So I'm going to first read for you just a, the, a short definition this comes from The Birth of the Trinity by Matthew Bates. It's a, it's a, um, I still don't understand this, so I'm just sharing this. I'm sharing the little bit that I do, because it's, if it's true, which the earliest church fathers thought it was, if it's true, it's really cool. Um, so let me just read a little to you. It says, as the earliest Christians poured over the ancient Jewish scriptures... In light of their own experienced reality of the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, right? Just what we're talking about. Not to mention the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. These Christians found certain sites of dialogue in the scripture, Old Testament, right? That demanded that the one God be identified and differentiated as multiple persons, Indeed, since the gospel writers portray Jesus himself as undertaking prosopological exegesis on multiple occasions, it's at least plausible that this process in the early church was a continuation of Jesus' own theodramatic scriptural interpretation and performative actualization. What in the world? <laughs> right? Woo! It just keeps going. Um, for these early interpreters, stick with me here, I'll slow down a little bit. As a prophet took on a theodramatic role. So the idea is that there's, it's a little bit of theater going on, right? So as the prophets like Isaiah and even David is being talked about as a prophet a little bit here um, because he's, he has visions and, and his insight, right? Uh, it's, it's a little bit of theater. They're speaking and it's like they're putting on a mask, and pretending to be someone else that they're not. They're not saying these things as David, right? And some of the times they announce it. They're saying, well, as the Lord says, or the Lord spoke unto Moses and said, well, sometimes it's just, they just jump right in without announcing it. They don't give all the stage cues, all, the, all those little, you know, this person's talking to this person. They just jump right in. And it's up to us to figure out who who's actually talking, because that doesn't make sense if they're saying it. And who are they talking to, right? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually jump over uh, to the one scripture, right? In the Psalms, we have that really funny, oh, we have a Bible. I'm going to jump. So it's Psalm 10, 110. There's this really strange little verse that then gets quoted by Jesus. Um, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What? Has anyone ever understood that? Oh. Raise your hand. I shouldn't raise mine because I never have. I'm always like, the Lord said to my Lord? Well, what does that mean? Who's talking, right? The Psalms are traditionally, most of them are written from David. So David is saying, the Lord said to my Lord, 
Jesus isn't around yet. This doesn't make sense. If you're thinking in prosopological exegetical terms, it does. So um, according to Bates here, he, he tries to paraphrase and, and stretch this out so we make sense of it. David himself starts this verse off by reporting the setting, saying, the Lord God said to my Lord, and then David speaks as if he's God, right? He's taking in the voice of God, speaking to the Christ. Sit at my right hand, O Christ, Lord of David, until I make your enemies a footstool for, my, for your feet. Does, do we, does this make sense? Do I need to run this? Do I need to repeat this one again? This is, this is weird. This was hard for me. I'll do it again. No one's saying yes or no, so I think we're all kind of like, what? We'll try it again. So again, this verse is saying, right, let me go back to the verse itself. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, this is David speaking. Who is he talking to? Who is he talking about? We don't know. The early church, um, as well as Jesus, right? Um, from the way he quotes this in um, the Gospels, understands this to be a conversation between himself and the Father, right? So Bates, paraphrasing it again, this verse reread through his lens here. David reports the setting. The Lord God said to my Lord, and then David puts on a mask and pretends to be God, for speaks in the voice of God for a moment, speaks to the Christ, not Jesus yet, right? The Christ, because David doesn't know. Sit at my right hand, O Christ, Lord of David, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So God is saying, sit at my right hand. So I shared last week that when, um, especially in seminary, I, I struggled with all these sorts of finding Jesus in the, in the Old Testament. And I was like, that's just, we're, we're trying too hard. We're pushing too much meaning into something that's not there. This, this has changed that for me in a lot of ways. And I've, I've, I've moved since then already. But... Um, I think we first, as we talked about with Catherine last week, with Catherine Opar sitting right here, that's why I'm pointing right here, um, there is meaning already in the Hebrew Bible by itself. Even without the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible makes sense. But then when Jesus comes along, it makes more sense. And that's a little bit about what this prosopological exegesis does. It just reveals and shows us a little bit more about what is going on. Clear? Questions? Kent? Ooh. So, uh, my my guess, a distinct person of God, as we understand it, that would have certainly been um, some... T I, it's hard to know, right? Because we know that when Jesus came on the scene, it's like, well, there's one and now there's two, and it's this, this squishy sense of we don't really know, and here, now Trinity makes the most sense. 
So it's sometime in that hundred years after Jesus that the Spirit has its own personality and personhood attributed. Um, and But even, even still today, some people, when they talk about the Spirit, they talk about the Spirit as it, right? That, that takes away the personhood of the Spirit. Um, it, it, we, we sometimes, without thinking about it, talk about the Spirit as a thing. And it's not. Sure. Sure. Yeah, and there's that, there's that tension of even if the Spirit dwells within us, aren't we asking for a, a, re- a further revelation that the Spirit is with us? So, yeah, come Holy Spirit, come... It's, it's a classic prayer. Does it make sense all the time? If you're fully aware of God's presence, do you need to say, come Holy Spirit, come? No. If you're in the dark night of the soul and you're struggling in life and, yeah, the Spirit's with you, but you're not really feeling it, that's a time to say, come Holy Spirit, come. Yeah. But the personhood of the Spirit, yeah, we're probably that first hundred years after Jesus is when that started to crystallize. Um we're going to move, let's move on in our packet. Let's go to page six. Also, before I move away from prosopological exegesis entirely, uh, if you are all 1030, well, you already heard this because you were 8 a.m. folks. In the Romans reading today, uh, when Paul starts quoting and speaking in the voice of Jesus, he's quoting the Old Testament. Bates would say that is prosopological exegesis. Paul is already doing it. Paul is saying, yeah, back in the Old Testament, that was really Jesus speaking. He puts those words in Jesus' mouth, and that's Scripture. So if you think that's bogus, that whole thing that Michael's been talking about for the last 10 minutes, well, Paul thought it was, was pretty true. So uh, what do we do with that? I don't know. Anyhow, middle of page 6, um, We've already been talking about uh, this birth of Trinity idea that there's conversations going on. But there are other echoes of Trinitarian theology in Scripture, and I'm just going to briefly touch upon these. When we hear the word wisdom, uh, often wisdom is personified. Um, The words chokmah and sophia in Hebrew and Greek, uh, that can point to Jesus. Not exclusively, but there's this sense that... um, that wisdom can point to Jesus, as well as the word word, right? From John 1, we know that. But the word appears again and again in various places as personified being, right? In Hebrew, davar, in Greek, logos. Um, you see this again and again. And um, there's some idea that this is the basis behind John's theology, right? Um, am I going to bore you with that? No. Okay. Sorry, I'm thinking out loud here. Um, And then we also see breath, wind, and spirit, ruach, pneuma, pneuma. um, Those point to the Holy Spirit. So we have, here's a selection from Proverbs 8. Does not wisdom call and does not understanding raise her voice? Well, we're talking about her because hulkmah is feminine here, right? But we could really just, if we were understanding this in a Christian context, we could talk, is this really Jesus? What's going on here? Um, the top of the next page, page 7, 
By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all their host by the breath of his mouth. By the devar of the Lord? Whoa. By Jesus? Jesus made the heavens, right? Uh, Isaiah 61, the ruach of the Lord God is upon me. Is that, oh, so back to your, actually, Kent, I didn't answer your whole question. I, I paused there because uh, the idea, the first part of your question was, at what point is it distinct? How would have the spirit have been understood? And in the earth, for, for the, the Hebrew people, they would just understand the spirit as an extension, emanation of God, right? Just as we, we say we have bodies, we have spirits, the spirit is a part of us, but, it's, but we still have a body, right? So God in God's self has this spirit, that's what they would say. But we give this understanding, this is kind of, again, this is where it's a little squishy, uh, this could be understood as either lowercase s, spirit. This is just an extension of, the, of God the Father. Or this could be a wholly distinct being. That is, well, not wholly distinct. Uh, um, this could be the Holy Spirit, right? Okay, yes. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, it has to do with the reason we used to use ghost, I think it was probably from King James Version of the Bible, right? English being uh, a Germanic language, the word ghost comes from the German word geist, which just means spirit. But at a certain point, people said, ghost, that's a little too Casper creepy for me. I, we shouldn't use that anymore. But we preserve it in the, the Apostles' Creed because it's the way we've always done it, right? Um, just like with the Lord's Prayer. We say, our Father who art in heaven. Well, I, I don't know the last time you said art in a conversation. How art thou today, right? If you said that in everyday conversation, people are like, weirdo, right? You're not gonna, no one's going to talk to you. But we still say the Lord's Prayer like that. Why? Because our grandparents did, and their grandparents, and their grandparents. So it's that, um, it's the same word. It's just two different forms of it, and the one is understood, the connotation's a little creepy. Yeah? Okay. Good question. Uh, And that's okay, too. And I've been to churches that have modern uh, paraphrases or modifications of the Lord's Prayer, and it's great. I think it's creative and it's liturgically appropriate, but it's sometimes hard to engage because, you know, you start saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be, oh, oh, wait, you just said holy, holy is, hold on a second, where's that bulletin? I'm saying the wrong thing, right? So there's that moment of disconnect. Um, Yeah, Uh, great. Uh, I want to read this little, middle of page seven, here is a little quote. Uh, this is a quote from um, Moltmann. This is Jürgen Moltmann, a good German theologian. Um, he is still living, and he is has a phenomenal story. Uh, I haven't read enough of him, but he is interesting. So he writes, this is in his um, book on the Trinity, and I can't remember the title at this very moment. 
But he says that the Father creates the world out of his eternal love through the Son. Adjectives are very important when talking about the Trinity, right? Not by the Son, not in the Son, not next to the Son, through the Son. For the purpose of finding a response to his love in time, in the power of the Holy Spirit, which binds together what is in itself different. In creation, all activity proceeds from the Father, but because the Son as Logos and the Spirit as energy are both involved, each in its own way and yet equally, creation must be ascribed to the unity of the triune God. In his creative love, God is united with creation, which is his other, giving it space, time, and liberty in his own infinite life. Ooh, you could chew on that all day long and still not get it all, right? That's why I love Moltmann. Um, and if you really love Moltmann, you're called a malt maniac, right? It's true. So w- once we start talking about the differentiation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we've got to ask the question, well, who came first? So who came first? That's what we want to say, right? This, the Father came first. But there's this sense that all of this took place before time began. So that's when language really starts to fail us, right? We want to say the Father was first, but how do you have a first and a second when there's no sense of time? Time and consequence, it doesn't make sense, right? So uh, even though they didn't have Doctor Who or H.G. Wells talking about time machines yet, uh, even the early church said, something's going on here with time that we don't quite get. And so we can't use traditional language of, you know, the Father was first. And we, well, there is this sense that there is primacy in the Father, um, but there's this sense that Jesus and the Spirit have always existed, right? So the, the language that they use is that Jesus is begotten of the Father and that the Spirit processes from the Father, right? Because you can't have, it's not like Jesus and the Holy Spirit are brothers, right? So you can't say they're both begotten of the Father. You have to say a different word. And we can't say created, right? Because that's a heresy. Um, We have to use slightly different language, right? So the Father begat Jesus, right? And the Spirit processed from the Father. So you see, you'll hear language of procession, um, and here, right again from Moltmann, the Council of Toledo in 675, it must be held that the Son was created neither out of nothingness nor yet out of any substance, but that he was begotten or born out of the Father's womb. Isn't that fascinating? That is out of his very essence. So um, when we, is this where I'm going right now? Uh, we'll come to it a little, in a little bit when we jump over to the Nicene Creed. But when we get to this language of begotten and procession, we think that it starts with the Father. Not necessarily that the Father was first, but then they, the, the others didn't exist, but that there's this sense that whew, they came from the Father. Uh, it gets weird and hard to describe, right? Um, when we get to the Nicene Creed, uh, I'm trying to actually think of the line. Let's jump, let's jump there. For, actually, put a finger where, where we are and jump over to page 10. Uh, 
the very bottom left corner. It's 1.3. It says, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds. This is procession. You say this once a month, every communion Sunday, and you're like, proceeds from the Father. What is it? This is the language the early church used to describe the relationship between Father and Spirit. But we don't just say proceeds from the Father. We also say, and the Son. In Latin, and the Son is filioque. So uh, this has this is the only I think this is the only Latin I'll use today. So um, filio, which means son, and que here means and the. Um, so the filioque clause, Nicene Creed, right? This is the earliest church. We don't have Catholic church. We don't have Orthodox church. This is the church. Everyone's united, right? For about five minutes, we're all together. Isn't that exciting? And then we, and, and we write this creed together, and we're all on board with it. We're all saying the same creed, right? From east to west, north and south. Everyone's saying the same Nicene creed together. And then somebody in the west says, well, wait a second. Shouldn't that say, and the sun? Shouldn't that say filioque? And so they say, Yeah. Let's add that in. It's just one word. No one's going to notice. Well, this is one of the reasons that the East and the West split. Because the understanding of Trinity was so important to the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Church, that they said, you can't do this, right? Begotten process from the Father, right? There is, and we could, talk, we could talk about it. I'll be honest, I don't quite understand the beef with it. I, but I think it's unfortunate that we all came together for those five minutes, wrote this, and then a few hundred years later said, Wait, let's add the filioque. And then the whole rest of the church, the Eastern church, was upset, and that kind of led to ultimately part of the reason why the schism happened. So, um, okay, that's one thing. Back to page seven. So this is a, um, an interesting thing I, I learned about when reading... Um, Oh, come on here. Uh, Kendall Sulin has a book called The Divine Name. Um, and he, only part one has still been published. It's been 10 years. I'm still waiting for part two. It hasn't come out yet. But in the ancient scribal practices, which we've talked about a few times here before, right? They don't have a Xerox machine, if only they did. Um, but they had to, you know, scribes were writing the whole Bible down, right? You've got, oh, you've got a letter? You're, I, I'm passing through Corinth, Corinth, and you got a letter from Paul. Can I copy it down? And then I take it down, and, and hey, look at this letter of Paul. Oh, you want this? Okay, you, you go copy it. I'll keep it. I'll take it home with me and show it to all my friends, right? There's this tradition of copying, copying, copying. And in that process, there are certain scribal practices that come about. One of them that we find is the nomina sacra. Because these aren't just any old words, right? It's not like you're just taking dictation for uh, one single letter to go out. Um, your boss is, right? No, it's not that. These are holy words. These are words we're talking about God. We're talking about um, how we live in community, the community of the church, what the Lord is up to. These are important holy words. And so um, we know in the... Uh, that for uh, the, the Jewish faith, right, they don't say the word Yahweh, right? 
uh, uh, rabbi was talking about a few weeks, it would only have been spoken, we don't actually know how it's supposed to be said. That is the name of God, right? Um, we don't know how it was supposed to be said, um, but we know that the, only the high priest in the temple said it one time a year on Yom Kippur, and no one else could say it. So instead of saying the most holy name of God, they said Adonai, which is just a general word for Lord. So when you're reading the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and you see the word Lord, if it's in all caps, right, small caps, that referring to the word Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, yod Hey vav Hey, that is the name of God. When you see small, like capital L, lowercase O-R-D, that is referring to um, the title Lord, right? Adonai, right? So there, it looks like the same word on the page in English, but it's not. That's, some Bibles make that differentiation, which I think is important. Lord Adonai is a title. Lord, yod heh vav heh, um, Yahweh is a name. It's a proper name, not a title. Granted, we don't have access to the actual pronunciation of it because only one person in the whole community would say it once a year. So you're going to forget it, right? Um, it's passed down, it's passed down. The temple's destroyed. The priesthood is abolished, right? Nobody says it anymore. Nobody knows. The reason I'm talking about this is because there is this certain reverence for a holy name. And in the oldest manuscripts, we see this, that uh, even when we get to other languages, um, and we're not just writing yod Hey vav Hey, we see um, that uh, the divine name is, is set apart in different ways. Sometimes it's uh, written with a special color. Sometimes it's written in a bigger font. Um, sometimes, even in a translation, the Hebrew is still uh, written. So here in the middle of the page, uh, this is from the Fuad Papyrus. The, the divine name was written in Aramaic. And um, here, O Israel, yod heh vav is our God, yod heh vav alone. And a funny thing happened. This is a little side story. I don't think I, I wrote this in here. I hope I didn't, but it's a fun story, so I'll tell you. So Hebrew, of course, is written right to left, Greek, English, all the others are written from left to right. So when uh, people were doing this, and some people came along and said, I don't get it. What are they doing? Hear, O Israel, and they didn't know that it was uh, Hebrew. They thought it was bad, badly written, poorly written Greek. And so they're like, they tried to like make it out, and they were like, well, that looks like a pi, iota, pi. That's a weird iota. So they pronounced, they said, Hero Israel, Pipi is our God, Pipi alone, right? It's the weirdest little story, but it's a funny one. Because um, they didn't get it, right? It's all these little special things that people were doing to set the name apart, and people were like, I don't know what they're doing here. So anyhow, the idea is that these names are being written in a special way. And then, turn the page, in the Greek... We find um, this is where the nomina sacra uh, start being used in the Greek, that full words are being abbreviated. Again, we can't say the whole thing, just like, uh, just like Yahweh. We can't say Yahweh, we're not holy enough, so we'll say Adonai. So 
the idea is we can't write the whole word, we'll abbreviate it. But we'll set it apart in a special way. So at the very top of page 8 here, theos is the word God in the Greek, and you'll have contracted forms, right? Jesus, Jesus, again, you'll have a shortened form. Christos, Christ, again, contracted form. So all these special words are being set apart. What does this have to do with Trinity? Well, it didn't just go with Adonai, with Yahweh. This practice of setting the names of God in a special way then was transferred to Jesus, then was transferred to the Spirit. So this is before we even get to Nicaea, the the, uh, Council of Nicaea and Trinity fully, you know, set a set together in a creed, even in the earliest scribal practice, this is what is happening. These people are saying, oh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are special in a way we don't quite yet get, but we're going to write all of these names, all of these titles in a special way. And I think that's pretty cool, right? This is kind of like we're uncovering archival, right? This is archaeological stuff. This is the earliest manuscripts are saying these things before anyone else, right? So the um, here in the middle of page 8, this is a verse taken from Codex Sinaiticus, an ancient handwritten copy of the Greek Bible um, from the 4th century. So here is 2 Corinthians 13, 13. He caris tu curiu, Iesu Christu, kai he agape tu theu, kai he kononia toi agiu, penumitas meta panton human. Okay, my Greek is a little rusty. But it says, and look in this uh, chart in the middle here, it says the grace of our Christ, right? Specially, they're specially set. And the love of good and the communion of the Holy Spirit, right, with all of you. The idea is that all of these, these three titles, these three people are special in ways that we don't quite get. We haven't, we haven't fully defined the, the doctrine, but this is um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit special. And you can see here in Sinaiticus, right, the very top, when there's a line over top, that is an indication of the nomina sacra. Make sense? Clear as mud, clear as crystal. Questions, comments? Okay, we'll keep going. Okay. So as we're, we know that there's something special, but we're not quite sure exactly what. We know that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all God, but there's not three, and we're still figuring it out. And the way that we figured out, as we talked about in this class before, um, the earliest church figured out their doctrine by when someone else said something, that they're like, that can't be right. So you must be a heretic, and I'm right. So they drew this line in the sand saying, wrong, right. That is heterodoxy, this is orthodoxy. I don't quite know yet all of what I'm understanding here, but, oh, but that's wrong too, and that's wrong. So they, heresies, they, when, when they realize what they, they don't believe, that helps them to define what they do believe. 
So the earliest, we're going to page page 9 here. Uh, top of 9, this is again from Moltmann. He says, The early church's doctrine of the Trinity took on form during its resistance against dangerous heresies, in which the unity of Christ with God was called in question either on God's behalf or on Christ's. It was only in these controversies that Trinitarian dogma grew up. And with the dogma grew its foundation as philosophical, terminology was given a new theological mold. So all sorts of, we're not going to go into all of them, but needless to say, there were a lot of people that didn't make the big C church happy, and they ultimately said, you're not right. You should believe this. I was like, well, no, I'm not going to, I think I'm right. And what we have to do is we have to have a measure of grace here because these are all Christians who are trying to figure it out, right? These are not, when we hear heretic, we think, oh, evil, let's get the pitchforks and, you know, do a good old-fashioned burning here. No, no, no. These are good Christians who are trying to figure it out. It hasn't been fully defined. There's no book to say this is what the truth is. No one's telling them they're the first to figure it out. And so... um, there are, you can say these heretics' names and boo, hiss, boo, hiss, but, but they're really just good old Christians who are trying to, to get it right. Uh, and the big C church said, nah, maybe not. So um, I often don't agree with Wayne Grudem in much of his theology, but I thought this was helpful. It's the middle of nine. In his uh, systematic theology, Wayne Grudem argues that Orthodox Trinitarian teaching must adhere to these three principles. One, two, three. One, God is three persons. Two, each person is fully God. (laughs) And three, there is one God. Do you see any problems with that? There's God is three persons, there is one God. Oh, wait, you just said there's three, but there's one. This is, again, the pendulum swing. And what we find out is if uh, when we don't fall into all these three, even if we don't get it, even if these seem to be in tension with each other, if we don't hold on to all three, we quickly uh, are not, we find ourselves not in orthodox uh, understanding of Trinity. So if we hold on to the ideas of one and two, God is three persons, each person is fully God, but we don't really like three. There is one God. What do we believe? We're tritheists. We believe there are three gods. Well, we don't think that, right? I don't think there's three gods. That doesn't make any sense. But if we believe two and three, so each person is fully God and there is one God, but we don't believe God is three persons, we fall into something called modalism, which we'll actually hear about uh, in about 10 minutes um, when we watch a video uh, on that very thing. Modalism is the idea that there is one person but that there's that one person is like, whoop, I'm the father now, now I'm the son, now I'm the spirit, and they can't be all three at once. That's the that's the difficulty of the idea the the metaphor, right? Of like water, right? Water, ice, steam. You can't be all three of those at one time. You can only be one of those at one time. Same thing with the egg, right? All of those metaphors, while helpful in a way, you can very quickly start to poke holes in it. It's heresy. If you believe in one and three, God is three persons and there is one God, but that maybe each person isn't really fully God, that's Arianism. 
uh, uh, when Arius, who is the heresiarch, there's a good word for Scrabble. Um, a, uh, heresiarch means the one who started the heresy. Um, he said that Jesus and the Spirit are not fully divine. We believe that they are divine. Then one, you know, I'm gonna, you can read the rest. Ultimately, uh, we have to hold on to, to all three of these. And when we don't, we fall out of orthodoxy. Now, I will point out here that, um, of course, monotheists, uh, Judaism, Islam, they believe there's only one God, right? So, of course, they don't believe uh, uh, one and two. They just believe there's one God. Unitarians believe the same, right? Even if they claim Christian, right? Um, there are some Christians who are functionally Unitarians. They're not fully Trinitarian. They don't have an understanding of God as three persons in one being working together. Jehovah Witnesses the same, and you will find most cults out there that claim to be Christian often have a poor understanding of Trinity. If they start talking, um, if they don't talk about God the Father and God the Son as being one, uh, or the Trinity, they reject any language like that, that's pretty good indication they are a cult. They are outside of classical, orthodox, Trinitarian Christianity. Make sense? Um, we're going to zoom... Th- uh, actually, we're going to skip over Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed. We read these every um, all the time. We say these. I actually want to go on to page 11 here. Uh, this is a creed that we do not have... Uh, and for good reason, I think, in our uh, Book of Confessions, our Presbyterian Book of Confessions. But there are other faiths and denominations today that do hold to the Athanasian Creed. This comes from Athanasius, um, a champion of orthodoxy who did not like Arius. So, um, whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic, that is, universal faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now this, here it is, this is the Catholic faith. I'm not going to read the whole here, but th- it's good to meditate on this. There's some, lots of good stuff going on here. We worship one God in unity, excuse me, one God in trinity, trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another that of the Holy Spirit, still another. But the divinity of Father, Son, and Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, so the Son, so the Spirit. The Father is immeasurable, so the Son, so the Spirit. The Father is eternal, so the Son, so the Spirit. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So, too, there are not three uncreated or unmeasurable, immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. So, it keeps going through describing these attributes belong to all three. But not really, but all three. But not really. Again, pendulum swing. But this is, this is probably uh, the following pair of the column, right where it says, anyone then... I think this is probably uh, why this is not in our book of confessions. Anyone th- then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. But it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. And it goes through, uh, continues on this idea. 
In the very last lines, this is the Catholic faith. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. Oh, that, that does not mince words. That is pretty strong language. Um, if this is true, I think we're all, uh, in, yeah, not saved. Because nobody gets this, right? I love that the Athanasius Creed, Athanasian Creed really tries to lay it out. This is really Trinity. I am of the mind that Trinity is a mystery that we just don't get. And if you say you understand it, you're probably a heretic, right? Um, you probably don't. I don't. I don't fully get this. I've, I've walked with this. I've read a lot on this. I still don't get it. Because this is the deepest mystery of who God is. And so it can't make complete sense to us. We can't wrap our heads around it. So the idea that if you don't get this, you're damned, you are not saved. <laughs> I think we're, none of us is in a good boat. Yeah, Roger. Oh, the shack. Yeah, who's read the shack? Yeah, uh, I think the shack, um, yeah, I just read it. Was it this year? Beginning of this year? Um, maybe last year. Uh, I think I think overall it's a good exploration of the Trinity. I do. I think um, I'm, I'm, the author's name is failing me now. William. I don't know. Um, I can even see his face. I just can't see his name. So um, I think... I think he does a really good job of exploring Trinity and I, the theology of the Trinity and putting it into terms we can understand through narrative. But I think there are several points that we, that he skips over orthodoxy or that he really gets so close to Harris. I'm just several, there are several things that make me uncomfortable in it, and yet I really appreciate how he tries because it's a hard thing to do. Um, do I agree with the all the ways he went about it? No. Do I think he did a good job trying? Do I think it's a worthy read? Sure. Yeah. What? William Young. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, we've talked about heresies. We've talked about creeds. What else do we have here? Um, I'm going to actually pause for a minute to see if there are any questions, and then we have a video. A brief video. You get it? All of you get it? You all understand? <laughs> there is a lot more here in this packet. Let me just briefly zoom through what's here just so you know. Top of 12, there's a whole section on the naming and the gender of God, um, which is interesting. Essentially, um, we talk about God as Father because that's how Jesus talked about God. Um, and some people try to remove the gendered language, um, which I appreciate, but also that's how Jesus spoke. So what do we do with that? We know Jesus is the Son, but Sophia, Lady Wisdom, there's a strange association between Jesus and Sophia, so there are feminine aspects of Jesus. And the Spirit the word in uh, Hebrew is feminine. The word in uh, Greek is neuter. The word in Latin is masculine, right? The early church also read the Latin Bible. Um, 
So the spirit is uh, a lone wild bird, as I've said before in this class. Um, the Trinity, as I said also, there are other Christianities, other faiths that do not hold to this. And so page 12 through 14, actually really to the end, talks about the ways that other faiths, other branches of Christianity, uh, non-Orthodox ones, would understand the faith. If there are no other questions, I have a little funny, hopefully funny video for you. Um, let's see, did it actually? It's going gonna, it's gonna to take a second here. Um, this is a Lutheran satire. This is a video I found many years ago that I just so appreciate. And let's see if it's going to wake up here for me. Is it awake? Aha. So I hope you take this for what it is. It is satire. So it's meant to be funny. I'm going to mute myself. Mute myself and turn this on here. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light, and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously. 
I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. Okay, that was probably a bit much. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Now let's all put on some giant green foam hats, get riotously drunk, and vomit in the Chicago River to celebrate our conversion. <laughs> So certainly, oh. <laughs> business has been real bad lately. So uh, obviously satire and a little off color at points, but um, the idea is that, yeah, we all try to explain it and it's really hard. It is indeed a mystery. So, um, but it is one that we are called to uh, wade into, one that we are called to wrestle with. And so uh, I hope that this two-week exploration has been uh, enlightening and of interest and that you um, may feel that you understand just a little bit more of who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, before we depart, let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of your holy word in it that we may find words of life in it we may find the fullest revelation of who you are. We thank you, Father, that you sent your Son, Jesus, to be among us, to make yourself known to us, and that when you called Christ back to your side, that you sent your Holy Spirit to be with us, that we have never been alone, but that you have always been with us. Be with us still, Almighty God. Help us to uh, wrap our minds around the fullest revelation of who you are. Although in this life we will never fully comprehend it, help us to have the stamina to still wrestle, to still desire to know more of who you are. One God, three persons. You have revealed yourself to us and we are thankful for that. And we pray that as you are God, one in three you call us into community with yourself. May we heed and answer that call into the community of the Trinity as you share your life with us. May we be in you and put our lives wholly in you. We pray this in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and say together, Amen. Thank you all. Next week is theodicy. Why, does bad, why do bad things happen to good people? So, really easy topics this month.